Welcome to Yesterday Meets Today, Themes Throughout History. I'm Spencer Vollmer, your host and guide as we explore the themes connecting the histories of the distant and not-so-distant past with each other and also with our own more recent history. Together, we'll boldly venture out in pursuit of knowledge, always striving to learn new things about the past, the present, and maybe even a little bit about ourselves along the way. as we get ready to round out our first theme. Last week I mentioned that today is going to be different from the previous episodes. We've explored the theme of emerging societies in ancient Rome, Japan, and the Aztecs. Now we've arrived at the point where yesterday meets today and we're going to make connections with the more modern history. I can't remember if I've mentioned before, but the modern focus of this podcast is going to be the United States. Now I'm not going to talk about the U.S. in the same way I've talked about the others. It won't be a straightforward exploration. Since the purpose of this podcast is to make connections throughout history using themes, especially connections to the modern history, that's how we're going to explore it. I'm going to break our theme down into its components and make the connections, at which point I'll talk about the part of U.S. history I'm connecting to. While all the societies we've explored are connected by the overall theme, not every society will be connected under each component. And there might even be a point or two that I do want to cover where I may not make a connection to the U.S. history. If those do appear, they'll be the exception and I won't spend too much time on them. It'll probably be easier if I stop trying to explain it and just get into it. I'm sure it'll make sense as we go. On the broad, overall part of our theme, we've looked at how three societies came into being. I'd venture to guess that most people already know the story of how the U.S. came to be, but just to briefly summarize... The Age of Exploration saw England, France, and Spain sending explorers out in an attempt to find a direct route to Asia and the Spice Islands. Traveling over land was difficult due to terrain and other peoples who inhabited the area in between. Columbus led the Spanish primarily to Central and South America. Contrary to what many were taught, he wasn't actually here in North America. The first European on North American continent was John Cabot, sent by the English in 1497 CE, seeking the fabled Northwest Passage. He likely landed at what is now Labrador and Newfoundland, which is located in northeastern Canada. It wouldn't be until 1850 that the passage was discovered, and not until 1906 that a successful navigation would occur. Unfortunately, this passage is easier to navigate today as the Arctic ice is receded. Ah, but let me back up. I skipped something. There were visitors before this time, namely the Norse peoples who are known to have landed in the Newfoundland area around 1000 CE. Leif Erikson is thought to have been the first European to set foot on North American soil. First confirmed, anyway. It's entirely possible that others made the journey, but if they did, we have no record of it. The French also sought the Northwest Passage, sending Jacques Cartier in 1534 CE. He explored the same area Cabot is believed to have landed on and also met with failure in search of the passage. After surviving a harsh winter in Quebec on his second voyage, he was sent a third time in 1541 to help a man named Jean-François de la Roque de Roberval establish a colony. After surviving another harsh winter prior to Roberval's arrival, Cartier found what he thought was gold and set off for home. He encountered Roberval in Ireland and was commanded to return to Quebec, but he snuck out at night and sailed for home in order to present this gold to the king. Funny enough, it turned out to be worthless fool's gold. 
Kind of embarrassing, don't you think? Meanwhile, in Quebec, Roberval set up the colony, which lasted just one year before the colonists returned to France, and France backed out of the North American colonization game for 50 years. Now, the English struggled in their first attempts as well. First was the Roanoke Colony off the coast of North Carolina, established in 1587, which is well known to have vanished while Governor John White was stuck in England. He'd gone back on a trip to get more supplies when he became stranded due to the Spanish Armada's attack on England. By the time he regained his ships and returned to Roanoke in 1590, the colony was abandoned. To this day, we still don't know where they went, just that the fort they'd built was in ruins and CRO was carved on a post. A mystery yet unsolved. Jamestown was next in 1607. Established by an initial 110 colonists comprised of only men and boys, the colony was built in a swamp and struggled. It seemed doomed until 1611, when John Rolfe discovered how well tobacco grew in the area. That and a constant influx of colonists saved the colony. Here, Rolfe had his famous encounter with Pocahontas, made her Christian as was one of the colonists' goals for the American Indians, and took her to England where she was an example of how a so-called savage could be civilized. It was there that she unfortunately died of a European disease at the young age of 21. Settlers arrived in the New England region seeking religious freedom for themselves. They actually arrived at the region by accident after they were blown off course during their trip to Virginia. The freedom they sought was from the Catholic influence in the church. Now, being family units, they were actually more stable in their communities than the more southern ones that were still made up of just men and boys. Many Europeans venturing to the so-called New World arrived as indentured servants. They couldn't afford their passage themselves, so they got a sponsor, worked off their debt, and then went out on their own. But eventually that source of labor dried up, and we see the Atlantic slave trade take off as the colonists started buying slaves directly from Africa. By the year 1700, the slave population had increased to 13,000, making up roughly 13% of the settlement population. Make no mistake, this form of slavery was unlike any other in human history. The emphasis on race was a big difference, along with the assumption that slaves would work until they died and then their children would do the same. No chance for freedom. By 1760, the slave population was a quarter of a million, most of them being located in the South. The reason we see this development is that the South was based on cash crops that the white slave owners just didn't want to work, thus the large slave population. The North developed in a more industrial direction, soon finding England placing restrictions and regulations. In 1764, England began taxing the colonies to pay its own war debt, leading to the well-known statement, No Taxation Without Representation, in which it was the representation, not the taxation, that was the sticking point. They were tired of Parliament making the decisions and wanted their own representatives. They'd often been ignored until England wanted something, leading to the development of autonomy. So, in other words, only their own representatives could tax them, not Parliament. The British attacked Lexington and Concord in Massachusetts in 1775 after the First Continental Congress had met, without Georgia, and started preparing defensive measures including the Minutemen, so-called because they were ready to fight at a moment's notice. This was the night of Paul Revere's ride and the shot heard round the world. In this conflict, the British suffered losses totaling three times that of the colonists. 
On July 4, 1776, the Declaration of Independence was signed. The colonies began restructuring estates, and by 1781, most had their own constitution. In 1783, U.S. independence became official, complete with a somewhat ambiguous ceding of territory that you can see in a map I've posted on social media. I think that's a good point to stop at. Of course, there's a long way still to go in order to reach 50 states and an emerged society. Too much to cover today, even though the emerging societies theme does in fact stretch beyond this point, and I will reference later events as we go forward. Events like the forcing of American Indians off their land, or killing them outright with weapons or European diseases, the Civil War, westward expansion, the World Wars, the Great Depression, and numerous other nation-shaping events are all still to come after independence. I'll explain any relevant events that came after 1783 as they come up. Now we turn to our theme and start making connections. The first part I want to talk about is easy to connect all four. These societies did not emerge entirely on their own. All of them were formed with the presence of another society or at least other groups of people. With ancient Rome, it was a combination of two. The more direct connection was the gathering of the people who inhabited the nearby hills to build Rome's initial population. It was described in the founding myth, but we do know it was based on reality. The Romans did welcome people from different groups with citizenship to build the city early on. There's also the indirect connection to Greece that is more cultural. Though the myth of Trojans leaving Greece to settle in Rome wasn't real, the influence of the culture and the desire to be connected to it was. As a result of the Romans connecting themselves to Greek culture, those influences shaped many parts of Roman life as if they had really been there at the beginning. With Japan, we learn that some people did come from China and possibly Korea as well. One of the most significant impacts of the Chinese immigrants helping to form Japanese society was the knowledge of wet rice cultivation, something so important and so valuable that it spread across almost the entirety of Japan's main island of Honshu. They also brought ideas of empire, the influence of which is seen as Japan's emperors emerge. It even created tensions when the emperors of Japan started seeing themselves of equal standing alongside the emperor of China. We didn't really cover that, but it really shows you how the culture of people who formed Japan was similar yet distinct from the lands the immigrants came from. The Aztec Empire was built by the Mexica primarily through subjugation of the nearby peoples, but also with the Triple Alliance of Texcoco and Tlacopan. They also internalized cultural influences of the Mesoamerican peoples that came before. This wasn't just a group of people, but rather the history of a region that formed the foundation of the empire with a Mexica twist. And of course, they benefited greatly from the tributes demanded from the subjugated peoples, allowing a more comfortable life for the nobles in Tenochtitlan. Now for the U.S. connection. It's fairly easy to connect. England, France, and Spain all moved to establish colonies. They brought with them their culture and knowledge, and in a way, a rejection of their culture and knowledge. In some ways, people were escaping aspects of European life, such as those looking for religious freedom. Eventually, the English dominated the colonies, but other influences remained in some areas. It all sort of came together alongside this development of autonomy in the absence of English control that led to the U.S. becoming something new, a unique culture. The European identity started falling away as the new U.S. identity formed and independence was won, though it would be a long time yet before unity would be achieved. 
A more unique part of the U.S. history that sets it apart is how they arrived. Colonists were being sponsored and sent out. Companies like the Virginia Company emerged with goals of their own and the PR to make people think that swampy Jamestown was just a wonderful place to live. Where the other societies found a place to establish and grow, European colonists were sent after the accidental discovery of this new world as an extension of the country that they'd been sent from. It was only after they'd been building up the colonies on their own that the new society formed, separate from their European origins, though much like ancient Rome, the connection and influence remained. One last point here is the non-Europeans who were part of this new society, or at least were in the physical region. The American Indians were not part of this new nation. Many were killed by diseases, with estimates of their initial population ranging widely from 2 million or so up to 18 million. By the 1890s, only around 250,000 remained in what is now the United States. Diseases such as smallpox, which the Europeans had more of an immunity to, were devastating to the American Indians, and those who survived were still treated as inferior. Regardless of what they did or what side they might have taken in conflicts, treaties to retain their lands were still overturned and many were forcibly located, which included the infamous Trail of Tears. The reservations and tensions with the U.S. government are still around today, though many have now moved into urban areas. The other side is, of course, those brought from Africa. They were forced to be a part of this new society, but at the same time not a part of it. They weren't treated as citizens even when the generations came along who were born here on U.S. soil. Even when they were considered part of the population, they only counted as three-fifths of a person. When the idea of freeing them came up, some people just wanted to remove them from the U.S. entirely and put them in some place that they didn't know rather than let them be free and live alongside them. Not until the end of the year 1865 were all slaves legally freed. Even after this, they had to fight for equal treatment as citizens of the United States. Contrast these points with the other societies. Ancient Rome's founding myths spoke of conquering Latium, but in reality we only find evidence that they brought different peoples together. In Japan there was conquest, but it was from within among the peoples who were there and not by that of an outside force. The Mexica didn't kill or force anyone out when they arrived at Tenochtitlan, and rarely killed off cities, preferring instead to subject them and demand tribute. This deviation into conquest and killing both of native peoples and absolute subjugation of those forcibly brought to this new society is unique to the emerging United States in comparison to the others we explored. So there you have the first way our theme connects these societies both the ways they are similar and the ways the emerging United States society took the theme in a new direction. All of them were made up of different people and cultures that came together as one new society, which might make you wonder how many societies originated on their own without other peoples and cultures involved. I think I'll just leave that one for you to think on. Now let's talk about religion. In talking about ancient Rome, it is important to remember that what we call mythology was as real to them as Christianity, Catholicism, Judaism, Islam, and other existing religions are to those who believe them today. So when we explore this, try to think of it from their point of view to understand where they were coming from and how it relates then and today. So when we talked about the ancient Romans, they placed a heavy emphasis on the presence of the gods when it came to their society. They are woven all throughout the founding myth, which I'll touch on in a bit, 
They believed the gods wanted Rome to be founded and that the gods favored them, most notably Mars, god of war. They would derive a belief in Rome's superiority and the drive to go to war from this, and likewise their success would feed the idea that they were favored by the gods. You could call it a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. They believed in the gods' favor, and they acted in ways that furthered that belief, and so their beliefs played a big part in shaping the society as it emerged. In Japan, we saw the Shinto religion playing a role as well. Most importantly, the goddess Amaterasu, from whom the emperors drew a divine right to rule. She was also the embodiment of Japan and of the rising sun, making her of paramount importance to these people. So the connection to her became crucial even if the myth itself didn't emerge until several hundred years after the first verifiable emperor. A bit different from what we just mentioned with ancient Rome, but still vital to the emergence of Japan in our theme. The Mexica were more similar to ancient Rome when it comes to religion. They believed the god Huitzilopochtli told them to leave their ancestral home and seek out a new one. More than any other gods, he shaped their society. One way was the association with warriors. The Mexica, and eventually the Aztec Empire, put strong emphasis on men becoming warriors, and the god embodied that, having been born from that ball of hummingbird feathers, which was connected in the belief that warriors were reincarnated into hummingbirds. Also big in the empire was sacrifice believed necessary to save the world. This was in part by keeping the sun, which the Pocli, strong, and keeping the earth nourished. So here, too, their beliefs played a big role in shaping society, and that's actually just one small part. Now on to our modern connection. This one is, well, a little complicated when it comes to the United States. Religion plays a role, but it's not as straightforward. For some, settling in the New World was about gaining religious freedom. The colony at Plymouth was established by Protestants, who were called Puritans due to their desire to remove Catholic influences from the Church of England. They left for the New World because they wanted to practice their beliefs freely and in so doing, established a stable colony by bringing families along. Others wanted to bring their religion to the New World, as seen when Pocahontas is converted to Christianity and reborn as Rebecca. Her time in England was even treated as a sort of PR stunt by the Virginia Company to show how the savage had been civilized and conversion to Christianity was a big part of that. In both cases, religion was a driving factor, but for different purposes. Some wanted to create converts to their beliefs, others wanted to be free, and their beliefs would help shape how the colonies were formed, though clearly they didn't hold a single unified belief system, which of course causes some trouble later on. There's so much we could unpack here, but the interpretation of what their god called them to do is key for today. Here's the thing though, there's an element similar to what happened in Japan, a sort of retroactive application that the Founding Fathers didn't intend. You've probably heard the words under God in the Pledge of Allegiance, seen in God we trust on money. Well, when it comes to both, it's a relatively new addition. The pledge itself has changed a few times. It was President Eisenhower in 1954 who added under God. He signed the bill into law on June 14th, and I think this quote from him, if a bit longer than I would usually use, will help connect the dots a little better than my own words could. From this day forward, the millions of our school children will daily proclaim in every city and town, every village and rural schoolhouse, the dedication of our nation and our people to the Almighty. To anyone who truly loves America, 
nothing could be more inspiring than to contemplate this rededication of our youth on each school morning to our country's true meaning. Now after this, he talks a little bit about war and violence taking place around the world at the time. Then he concludes with this. In this way, we are reaffirming the transcendence of religious faith in America's heritage and future. In this way, we shall constantly strengthen those spiritual weapons which forever will be our country's most powerful resource in peace or in war. Very direct, isn't it? Very clear. Eisenhower was a Presbyterian, which to my understanding is a Protestant Christian denomination, or at least he had been for about a year or so. There's no mistake he was placing his religion at the top, so to speak, sending it out to the children of the nation and placing devotion to the Almighty, that is, the Almighty he believed in, as a part of this country's true meaning, which the nation's youth would be rededicated themselves to as they grew up. He even puts it on anyone who loves the nation to agree and be inspired by this religious affirmation. Keep in mind, this doesn't actually take away freedom of religion. Many different religious denominations are present in the U.S. to this day, though the extent of religious freedom and who it applies to isn't a matter I'd say has been settled, and in truth, I doubt it ever will be. What Eisenhower did was bring his religion front and center as an integral part of the nation as a whole. And not only that, he called it both a resource and a weapon, as well as a part of both heritage and future. Key in on that word, heritage, something that is inherited. So America's heritage is what America inherited. Doesn't that sound a bit similar to how the emperors of Japan, having already ruled for several hundred years, established their divine right to rule through the goddess Amaterasu? I'd say it does. Eisenhower brought God, or rather the God he believed in, it's a key distinction, the one he believed in, to the forefront with this bill, adding under God to the pledge. He then sent it out to the entire nation by making it a part of the pledge that the children said every day, and he did it again in 1956 by adding in God we trust to the money. Religion did shape society from the beginning to now, for better or for worse, just as it did in ancient Rome, Japan, and the Aztec Empire. Like we've seen the other societies do, it's the same thing with a U.S. twist. For those born after that time, it's hard to imagine it any other way. It became an ingrained part of our society just as it did for the others we discussed. Still with me? I hope the format is making sense now that we've been through two components in our theme. Next up, I want to talk about how crops and animals impacted these emerging societies. We didn't cover much about this in ancient Rome because I just couldn't find many sources relevant to the point that took place within our time frame. In Japan's Jomon era, the availability of fish through the rising water levels after the Ice Age allowed them to settle in one place. They were able to forage near these permanent settlements and hunted small game with the bow and arrow. In the Yayoi era, they shifted to an agricultural society with the introduction of wet rice and changes in the climate. So it's pretty easy to see how food helped direct this emerging society. The Mexico were similarly influenced before becoming the Aztec Empire. Lake Texcoco, future site of Tenochtitlan, provided everything they needed in one spot. Plenty of fish and waterfowl to eat, and they developed the Chinampa system of dredging up soil from the lake and forming rectangular islands to grow crops, with multiple harvests being gathered each year. 
No doubt this played a big part in helping them grow as they did. Now for the United States. We already talked about how tobacco was a big crop that saved Jamestown. New England colonies were mostly able to grow the crops they needed to eat, but none to export. However, fishing was a big thing, enough to eat and to export. The middle colonies lived in a better climate with better soil, and so were responsible for a lot of crops exported to the other colonies as well as back to England. The southern colonies adopted the well-known plantation style of farming, which resulted in large numbers of slaves who worked large numbers of cash crops like tobacco and later cotton, resulting in more food crops being imported than actually grown. This quick run-through, while not complete, illustrates how the colonies developed around what was available to them. More importantly, it shows the interaction between the colonies. What one area lacked, another could provide. It contributed to how they developed autonomy prior to declaring independence. So food and crops, at least in three of our societies, played a big role in how and where they came together. Pretty straightforward, even if ancient Rome had to be left out. Another point of connection is the presence of a military, or at least a militia. Ancient Rome was, in many ways, defined by military conquest. As we neared the end of our discussion in that society, power was beginning to fall to those who fought and distinguished themselves in battle as part of the early civilian militia. To be a part of the aristocracy often meant to be a warrior of some renown, a trend that would only grow as the republic expanded and eventually became an empire. It was so important that the founding myth involved a Trojan War hero taking some of his fellow soldiers to Latium, where they conquered the people they found. Military might was just a core aspect of their lives. I didn't touch on Japan much in this regard, because while they had conflict and wars, the presence of military might wasn't something that really defined the period we discussed. In the Aztec Empire, the military was core to their existence, just as it was in ancient Rome. The Mexica's primary deity, as already mentioned, was born from the soul of a warrior. They too derived power from becoming distinguished warriors, making an entire aristocratic class and honoring women who carried children, especially boys who could become warriors when they were old enough. So powerful was their army that subjected peoples in the time of the empire were kept in line primarily by knowledge that the army was there, not by a physical presence. The United States, initially aided by trained soldiers sent from the European nations, were forced to develop their own militia as they decided to fight for their independence. I mentioned the Minutemen earlier, who fought at Lexington and Concord, taking out three British soldiers for every one colonist killed. A big part of their success was knowledge of the land and tactics the British were not prepared for. When they marched in to fight, the colonists fought from hidden locations, which allowed them to turn back the more regimented British soldiers. As the nation grew, more formal armies were established. North and South developed separate armies, but as time went on after the Civil War, a more unified armed forces emerged with different branches for different specialized needs. And much like the other societies, soldiers were and are honored for their service. Though I think we can all agree that our veterans often deserve better than they get. Now I have one last point to cover. One that I emphasized in each society that you may not expect me to connect to the United States. Founding myths. For ancient Rome, this story focused on the Trojan War hero Aeneas, along with his descendants Romulus and Remus. It served to connect the ancient Roman society to the existing Greek society to make it appear older, stronger, and more credible. 
It took existing Greek culture, such as the gods, and put a Roman spin on it. Aeneas was said to be destined to found Rome by the chief Roman god Jupiter, despite the attempts to stop him by the wrathful Juno. This filled a sense of destiny among the Romans, generating a feeling that Rome was destined to exist. Likewise, Romulus and Remus, born from Mars, helped to foster the idea that the gods favored their expansions through war. This myth, which doesn't appear until several hundred years after the events took place, was built around the society that already existed. Nevertheless, it was an identity that became a part of who they were and how they projected themselves to other societies. In Japan, the myth focused on emperors and their right to rule. In doing so, they established a line of legendary rulers dating all the way back to 660 BCE, long before the first verifiable emperor in 539 CE. The purpose was to create a link to the sun goddess Amaterasu, from which all subsequent rulers derived their right to rule, and so the myth established a single ruling family that continues to today. It also provided the three imperial regalia with which an emperor or empress proved themselves to be descended from the goddess. Again, this myth was written into the Kojiki and Nihon Shoki over 100 years after the first emperor, just as the ancient Roman myth was written later. For the Mexico, we have Huitzilopochtli again, who sent them out from their ancestral home to find a new land where the Aztec Empire would be built. The myth tells that they would know they'd arrived in the right place when they saw an eagle eating a snake while perched on a cactus or a rock a symbol that now adorns the Mexican flag. Here they founded Tenochtitlan and eventually dominated an empire. The myth continued to define their society through the previously mentioned sacrifices, both to the sun god Huitzilopochtli and the earth goddess Coatlicue. In this case, I'm not exactly sure when the myth originated, but I do know that it was combined with existing Mesoamerican beliefs that were established well before the Mexica arrived. So that's a quick rundown of our three founding myths. So you may be wondering, what founding myth is he talking about for the United States? Don't we know what happened when it was founded? Yes, we do know. Thing is, once the colonies were independent, they had to figure out exactly who they were. Way back in Ancient Rome's episode, I mentioned that it's easier to build on something that already exists than it is to start entirely new. That's still true and a retroactive myth is one way to go about it. To that end, we're going to talk about Christopher Columbus. A romanticized version of Columbus has been taught in schools for years, in which he is the one who discovered America, and therefore the reason we're here now. It even got him a federal holiday. This spread in part out of a desire to connect to a history with less ties to Britain following the American Revolution. However, we have discovered that Columbus isn't quite the man he's portrayed to be in this myth that was built around him. For one, he wasn't the first in North America. He landed on places like the Bahamas, Haiti, Central America, and South America. Never North America. Beyond that, Leif Erikson is believed to have arrived on the continent 500 years prior. What Columbus can be credited with is kicking off the Age of Exploration that eventually led the Europeans to arrive and basically take over. Unfortunately, the truth of his voyages isn't what the romanticized accounts portray. Columbus could be brutal, 
and mention is made of the potential for selling slaves. This is found in records from the time, including Columbus's own journal as copied by Bartolomé de las Casas, who sailed with him on his second voyage. He was even recalled from Hispaniola, where he was governor following his third voyage, after accusations of his brutality reached the court of Spain in 1499. His freedom and wealth were eventually returned, but he was never again allowed to be a governor of a Spanish territory. So it's not the same scale as the other myths, but you can see the general idea of creating a founding myth still exists. It was done to connect to an older history that also created a separation from Britain by connecting to Spain instead. We have other myths as well, however small they may be, such as Thanksgiving, which was initially a harvest festival that lasted three days. While it may seem minor, it also shaped a part of our society. You may get to hear more about it in a few months. You'll just have to stay tuned. Anyway, hopefully that gives you an idea of how founding myths exist in the United States. They're different, but still connected as a theme, which is the whole purpose of this podcast. Different societies, different versions, same themes. And that brings us to the end of our first theme. I really hope you've enjoyed learning about how these societies emerged and the themes they share. I'm not saying these are all the components we could discuss. If you saw any as we went through this month, feel free to comment on social media. Start a discussion. That's part of the reason I'm doing this. Inquire, comment, discuss, learn. I wholeheartedly encourage it. Now that we've successfully explored our first theme, I thought this would be a good time to tell you a little bit about me. A little background behind the voice you're listening to. Promise I'll try to keep it short. I received my bachelor's degree in history from Kennesaw State University in 2018. Great university. Had to give it a plug here. Truth be told, I hated studying history in high school, and I didn't become interested until a class in 2013, and even then I didn't fully embrace it until 2016. Now, I love it. One thing that struck me and contributed to my interest in studying history professionally is how everyone I know supposedly learned the same history, yet comparison reveals that we didn't all learn the same thing. Even among my age group, I found different versions of the same history, and when I talked to my parents, we realized the differences in what they learned were even greater. In one class I took, the professor had located an image from an old textbook that had the American Indians crying on the Trail of Tears because they were so happy as they waved goodbye to the white people on their homestead. I really wish I could find that again because it's just appalling that someone once tried to pass that off as factual history. I wouldn't believe it if I hadn't seen it. While I haven't extensively studied the trend, there definitely seems to be a regional influence on how different versions are told. And we're not talking about ancient history, we're talking about history from the past four or five hundred years documented history with primary sources that still exist, things we have access to and have access to more than any other time in history. So why does it seem like we're still creating versions of history that go against what the sources themselves say? It's a question I've asked myself and still do. Though I don't have a solution, I wish I did. For now, I do what I can. It takes hours of work daily to put together one podcast episode. I'm sure I could do it faster, but I'm conscious of every word I use. I do my best to make sure what I present to you is factual. Could I make a mistake? Of course I could. Everyone does. Anyone who says they don't is probably running for public office. But I love what I do and I will always do it to the best of my ability. 
My promise to you is this. I research everything I talk about, and I will never include information if I don't have at least one credible source for it. This is my passion, and this podcast is my labor of love. To all who want to learn, I want to provide the closest to a true historical account that I can find. That's why I do this. That's why I'm glad you're on this journey with me. That's why I hope you'll stay on this journey. And that's why I hope more people will tune in. Even if it's not your passion like it is mine, time spent learning is never wasted. So join me in exploring new themes each month. Well, that's officially it for September. I'll announce October's theme on social media on Friday, so keep an eye out for it. Hope you'll tune again next week. Until then, take care. <laughs>